Welcome to the Dumpster People Podcast. I wanted to try something uh, new. Not that I tried anything else before. But I wanted to start something on the first episode. Maybe it'll go somewhere, maybe it won't. Uh, but I wanted to try reading uh, scary stories, ghost stories, horror stories, and all that. And we're going to start with a book uh, compiled and edited by Andrew Honigman from the Files of Fate magazine called True Tales of Ghostly Encounters. I'm going to have to thank uh, my sister, uh, Elizabeth, for sending, letting me borrow this book. But um, she said, read it, have fun with it. So I'm going to. And so you, hopefully. Visiting Grandparents My ex-husband was a violent bully during our marriage, and after one particularly heavy beating, I crawled back to bed and just lay there. I knew that if my three-year-old son wakened from his afternoon sleep, I would not be able to go to him. I was past crying and just asked Spirit and my departed father for help. Suddenly, very gently, somebody sat in the bed, stroked my head, and held me in unseen arms. I fell asleep and awakened about five hours later, feeling a lot better. I heard my son laughing and went to him. As I entered the sitting room, he was waving goodbye to someone. I looked around. I saw that not only had he been entertained, but he had also been giving snacks. He had obviously had a great afternoon. Somehow, I knew I did not have to worry. I asked him who had been there, and he pointed to a photo of my parents. Grand and Grandpa had spent the afternoon with him, he said. They were always there for me when they were alive, and I know they are still there for us. Pat Kennedy, Glasgow, Scotland, September 2000. Plea for forgiveness. We were living on a farm near Tulsa, Oklahoma in July 1921. The noise of the men and the machinery in the process of baling blue stem hay came with the breeze through the open kitchen window where shortly before 10 o'clock, I was busy cooking the noon meal for a crew of hungry men. My three children were in an adjoining room. As I worked, I thought about my mother in Indiana, who slowly was dying of cancer in the liver. Until my husband, David, and I had moved west, we all had lived in the same house. Not a, not a doting grandmother. My mother had made my life pretty miserable after birth of each child. A hush fell over the place. I glanced through the window saw the men standing around the water keg. I stepped to the door of the next room to see what my children were doing. I gasped. There, on my low rocker, sat my mother, with her arms around my children. Memory of her pain-ravaged face as it turned towards me still brings tears to my eyes. Her eyes were pleading silently for forgiveness and love. The vision was like a flash, gone in an instant, but as real as life. When my astonished eyes could focus again, I saw my oldest child lying on the floor, reading, his feet propped in a chair. His sister sat on the floor dressing their dolls. They were unaware of the shock I had received. I forgot to bake pie that day and were scolded for my negligence. I never did tell my husband of this experience. He would have laughed. But that pleading look in my mother's eyes meant more to me than pies. That same evening, a a telegram came. It said, Your mother died this morning at 10 minutes of 10 o'clock. Ellen Blazier, Claymore, Oklahoma, December 1964. The Missing Documents My grandmother, Lottie Lagnon, had a suit pending in 1920 over some of her real estate holdings in Wisconsin. 
Her lawyer, Herbert Marshall, asked her several times for a certain document fixing the debatable the border, the deb, 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 debatable borders of the estate in litigation, but grandmother stubbornly refused to turn over the paper, supporting her claims. I'll hold on to this paper if I die over it, she stated. There is no use, there is no use risking it without, risking it out of my hands. Jesus, I cannot read. Why did I choose this? <laughs> that July, she did die, suddenly, one evening, at supper, while the whole family was present. Now, Mr. Marshall had not only the pending lawsuit, but also the settlement of her estate on his busy hands. We searched all over the house for her illegal papers, but without success. The lack of the critical document deprived Mr. Marshall of his most potent argument in court. But along with the rest of her documents, it was missing, and we feared Grandmother had taken the secret of his hiding place to her grave. On the fourth day after her death, Mr. Marshall had joined the family for dinner and was lamenting the old lady's stubbornness and his futile fight in court. Dinner was being served by her maid, Berthe. I'm going to call her Berthe. I like Berthe. Who had been with the family for 40 years. In the midst of our meal, our conversation was interrupted by a loud scream from Berthe, followed by the sound of shattered dishes in the hallway. I hate that sound. We rushed to the hallway through which Berthe passed, Berthe passed on her way from the kitchen and found her standing among the ruins of a shumptious supper, white and trembling, pointing towards the high-backed chair that stood to the old-fashioned grandfather clock. Grandmother had so often rested in this chair after she came in from a walk or from puttering in her garden that the family jokingly referred to it as her throne. When Berthe finally was calm enough to talk coherently, she claimed that she had passed through the hallway with the tray of food. She had seen Grandmother sitting on her throne, gently stroking the grandfather clock. We talked excitedly about this, but Mr. Marshall called Berthe a hysterical old fool and turned the conversation to more mundane matters. Perhaps we might have forgotten this incident if we had not been forcefully reminded, reminded of it the very next evening when the same thing reoccurred. When Berthe was walking through the hallway, she again saw Grandmother seated on the chair, and she dropped her tray. Dang it, Berthe. The matter grew frightening when the same thing was repeated on the third night. I'd be leaving the house if it was me, but okay. The excitement only added to our concern over the pending trial that would begin in only two days now. Mr. Marshall was running in circles trying to find either the missing document or some other proof that would clinch the case. After the third appearance of Grandmother's apparition, however, Grandfather William Langdon, a cool, practical man who at first attributed Berthe's visions to her long, close relationships to the family, said to us, Listen, my dears, I wonder, perhaps it's ridiculous, but no harm can come from it. If Grandmama did not want to tell us where... Her missed papers are. She stroked the clock. Let's search within. We did. Behold, in a hidden double back behind the swing pendulum were grandmother's papers. The suit was won and birthday received an ample reward in addition to her set out share in grandmother's will. And never again was grandmother seen to occupy her throne. Paul C. Langdon has told the Hero Ward Carrington, Chicago, Illinois, April 1974. Next one's called, What Had He Left Behind? When I was a child, my grandfather, John Colson, lived with us in our home in Aaron, New York. He was bedridden and finally died in the spring of 1945. Or 49, actually. During his lengthy illness, he used to holler, Hello! whenever he wanted anything. As his condition became worse, the frequency of his calls increased, and whoever was nearby would try to tend to his needs. 
After he died, we continued to hear his voice and his familiar call of, Hello! Everybody in the house heard it. We searched the house many times to find any unusual sound that might be misinterpreted as his voice. But we found nothing. My mother insisted that it was a trick of memory, but we children were convinced it was Grandfather's ghost. The climax came Christmas Eve 1949, when the adults all were out of the house. No noise, not a mouse. <laughs> my cousin, my brother, and sister, our dog, and I were home alone. Our German shepherd, come on, get a, get a pit bull. Or like, maybe a lab was a bit too friendly to excel as a watchdog, but nevertheless, she always raised an alarm if strangers were near the house at night. We all heard the first noise from Grandfather's room. The dog bristled, then whined, and she took refuge behind the Davenport. Her unusual behavior scared us more than the original noise. It sounded as if someone were searching frantically through the room. Drawers banged, and the closest door slammed, then silence. The dog crawled from her hiding place, and four terrified youngsters began to relax and search for an explanation. We checked the room and found nothing out of place. The only window was closed and locked from the inside. That was the last manifestation of any kind from Grandfather's room. Never again did you hear this voice. We don't know what caused the disturbance, but the four of us like to believe that Grandfather found what he was looking for, and now has no more reason to return. J.M. Swan, Pine Valley, New York, September 1976. 67, sorry. Final flight. At three o'clock the morning we ha after we buried my dad, Thomas Hogan, in Queens, New York, the front door. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm skipping a lot. The front door slammed, and a large mirror over the sideboard in the dining room hit the floor. It did not break or shatter. For f for fifteen years, Dad had slammed that door at three o'clock after a night out in his favorite tavern. My mother, Ruth Hogan, often scolded him, saying that one day the mirror would fall, but it never had until now. My grandfather, William O'Shea, and I were frightened, but nevertheless, we started down the stairs. We stopped when we heard the door to the basement close, and footsteps going down the stairs. Continuing on down, we saw the mirror. It went to the basement door, but could hear nothing. We locked the door and decided to wait until day, like daylight for further action. After mother's suicide by hanging the year before, on January 4, 1948, Dad had chosen to sleep in the basement. He also hung himself there on June 18, 1949, when he was 46 years old. The next morning, Grandfather and I continued our search and thought the strange, pungent smell of death was present. We checked the two windows in the basement bedroom. They were locked, and so was the one in the laundry area. We looked at each other. We looked at each other and decided to forget it. That same afternoon, I was out in the backyard with my son, Kenneth when I heard something hitting those same bedroom windows. I was amazed to see a fairly large bird frantically trying to break through the glass from the inside. I called out to Grandpa, asking him to go down to the basement and unlock the back door. A few seconds later, after Grandpa joined us in the garden, the bird flew out, circled over our heads three times, then perched on the garden gate nearby, watching us. When I said, you are free to go, the bird circled us, circled my head once more, then flew away. Life with Dad had not been easy. I had the strange feeling he was asking for forgiveness now, that his spirit was going to another plane. Eleanor Page, St. Petersburg, Florida, January 1988. Ooh, that one got me. That those last few sentences, that ooh, that got me. It wasn't scary. It was pretty sad, actually. Hung himself. Damn, bad way to go. On the midnight shift. I experienced quite a few unexplainable events on the midnight shift during my 13 years as a New York City police officer. 
One night, about eight years ago, Central sent my partner and me on a call from the parent break-in. The house frame, it, the house where the alarm had sounded was an old three-story A-frame. It had a window set up on the third-floor attic that faced the street. My partner and I decided to portal car, patrol car, and they searched outside and the of the property. Jesus Christ, I'm so bad at reading. My partner and I exited the patrol car and searched the outside of the property for evidence of a break-in. We didn't notice anything unusual in the yard or outside of the house, so we proceeded to the front door. I knocked on the door and stepped away to check windows. In the third floor attic window, I saw the blinds. I, I saw the blinds get pushed to the side, and I could barely make out the face of someone looking down at us. I said to my partner, It's going to be a minute. They're up on the third floor. Before I finished saying that, the front door began to open. An old woman asked us to come in. We proceeded into the home. She had three dogs that barked inc incessantly. Excessively. I don't know why I read it like SS. After a brief conversation, she stated she was living alone. Since I'd seen someone up on the third floor, it meant that she really was not alone. We didn't want to alarm the woman, so we told her we wanted to check the, out the house just to be sure. After checking the first floor, we told her we wanted to check upstairs as we walked downstairs to the stairs. We walked towards the stairs to the second floor, asked her, Have you ever had a problem with the alarm before? She told me that the only other time it kept going off for no apparent reason was on the night of her husband's birthday. We continued up the stairs, not thinking, uh, Jesus, not thinking anything of her response. She then said that it was odd because tonight was the one year anniversary of his death. My partner and I shot each other a look and thought something strange was going on. That's that look that tells you, you gotta get the hell out. Just quit your job, man. It's not worth it. We searched the second floor and didn't find anything. The windows were locked tight, just like on the first floor. And there was no apparent sign of a break-in break to trigger the alarm. There was just one other floor to check. From what I had seen earlier, I knew there was someone upstairs. Get the gun out. I asked her how to get into the attic. She pointed at the door and said, Behind that door, there's a flight of stairs. I looked up to my partner. He said he was not going up there. Don't blame him. I wasn't too happy, but since I definitely saw someone, I wasn't going to leave. I proceeded up the stairs, found the switch, and turned on the light. It was apparent nobody had been up there for a long time. It was a big, dark, empty attic. I went to the window that faced the street. It was locked, as was the window that faced the back. After searching the attic, I told her the alarm must have malfunctioned because no one was in her home. We told her to call us if ever happened again. We didn't want to tell her what it really was, her late husband, paying her a visit. Ed Thorgerson, Holtzfield, New York, June 2001. Strings from Heaven. At the age of 19, Kenneth Null, the boy next door in Bells, Tennessee, showed great promise as a concert violinist. Then tragedy struck when Keith was involved in an automotive automobile accident that cost him the use of his right arm. Damn. Right arm? Man, I'm, I'm, I'm right-handed. I need that shit. Everything impossible was done for him. Doctor after doctor was consulted, but always it was the same story. He never would play again. Friends and relatives tried to interest him in another career, but he wouldn't listen. He insisted he would play again. I will play again, he told me one night when we were alone. If I didn't believe that, I wouldn't want to live. Suddenly, I too believed. I told myself I was being a foolish, but I didn't. it didn't keep me from sharing his hope. A few weeks later, on June, 5, June 5th, 1940, I heard the violin at midnight. Ken was playing again. 
The music was heavenly. Wake up, I called my sister Lydia. Ken is playing his violin. He's at home alone. He will need someone to share his triumph. We raced across the lawn, putting on our housecoats as we ran. The front door was unlocked, so we stepped inside and stood listening. Ken was playing in the den. Never had we heard more beautiful music. Then the music stopped. We burst through the door with tears and shouts of joy, but Ken didn't answer. He lay motionless on the couch with his beloved violin prince pressed against his heart. The doctor later told us that when we found him, he had been dead at least two hours from a cerebral hemorrhage. My sister and I didn't argue. Dead or alive, Ken had played again for himself and for the two people who still had shared his hope and faith. M.L. Lovett, Custodian, North Carolina, December 1964. I gotta look this up. Cerebral hemorrhage. Cerebral Probably should know what it is. I and I probably do which have n no memory of this. Cerebral hemorrhage is uncontrolled bleeding in the brain. It can it can occur from an injury or as a result of a leaky or burst blood cell. Ooh. Damn. Okay. I'm going to be right back. I need some water because reading is very tiring.
I am back with a cup of water from my in my trusty, trusty, trusty Harry Potter cup. So we're gonna do this next one. Still in the family. In the late 1970s, I belonged to an enthusiastic southern Southern California group known as PSI or Psychic Science Investigators. I don't know why it has much. I almost said physic, physic science. There were between 15 and 20 of us. One of our activities was to visit all houses in the area and tune in on them physically. I was in charge of these investigative tours. Among the historical sites we had visited was Newland House in Huntington Beach. We went through it, room by room, to see what vibrations, quote, we could pick up and to keep mentally alert for any possible psychic phenomena. When our group went through the Newland home, I was careful to explain to the docents, 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 volunteers who take visitors on tours of the historic residence that we would like to walk through the building without being given any information about the rooms or anything in them. We also asked and received permission to use the psychic gift of psychometry, which meant we could touch or handle objects to gain psychic impressions from them. We did all this and jotted down our impressions. After our exploration, we decided to meditate around the larger dining room table. Sometimes, in our, the altered state induced by meditation, it becomes easier to pick up thought forms, or spirits who may be present. We had a video camera with us and used it to record the proceedings. At one point during our meditation, the ch chandelier over the table began to swim, swing back and forth. We all saw this, and so did the Dawsons, who were seated outside our circle. Yet when he, we played back the videotape, the chandelier was not shown moving. As we continued to meditate, I could sense a spirit standing by my right shoulder. I could see her clairvoyantly, very clear. The figure was that of an old woman wearing a long lavender dress. She had white hair done in a bun and she was leaning on a cane. In my mind, I could hear her voice. In a querulous tone, she said she wanted me to ask a question for her. My portrait is missing from this home, she said, and added, it was in a large oval dark colored frame. I want it put back. So I interrupted the meditation and described the woman to the group. Then I decided the portrait or described the portrait and asked if anyone knew anyone there knew what happened to it. Since no one seemed to know anything about the matter, the meditation resumed. When it was over, the spirit appeared again at my right side, and again she assisted I asked about her portrait. The old lady's back again, I, I said to everyone in the room, and I don't think she'll go away until she gets an answer. Can anyone help? At this, one of the docents, Bess Kennedy, who had, oh god, who had a comp... A accompanied us through the house, turned red, and stammered, I, I, I have it. Everyone looked at her in surprise. I have it, she repeated, and then she confessed before, before I was married. My maiden name was Newland. The old lady you described to us was my grandmother. When Newland's house was given to the country as an historical site, I wanted to have my grandfather's portrait, so I took it from home with me. Yes, it looked exactly as it was described, but now... It was in a square frame, instead of the oval nut frame we had originally. She looked at the other Dawkins and said firmly, I'm not giving it back. I told her she would have to work that out with her deported grandmother. Departed. Deported. Oh, God. With her departed grandmother. She looked at the other Dawkins and said firmly, Maybe she was 
satisfied knowing her. Oh, fuck it. I'm not giving it back. I told her she had to work that out with her departure. At this point, the spirit disappeared. Maybe she was satisfied knowing her portrait was still in the family. Christine Metzner, Fullerton, California, January 1986. Wow, I was having trouble reading that one. Oh, God. <laughs> okay, we're going to do the next one. Probably going to do, let's see. I don't know how many more. Checking out the bride. On Friday, December 11th, 1998, I went to bed early, hoping to get a good night's sleep. At about 2 a.m., I woke up for no apparent reason. I rarely do this. So I already had an odd feeling. I get a drink of water and decide to read until I fell asleep again. I went to the dresser to get my book. I saw, and I saw a woman in the mirror. I could only see her silhouette, but her hair was nicely styled and she was wearing long sleeves. We watched each other for a couple of minutes. Then I woke my fiance. Dwayne, there's someone in the mirror, and it's not me. She married to Dwayne the Rock Johnson? Yes! <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> oh my god. I told him. He rolled over and asked what she wanted. I replied that she was just looking at me. Dwayne was already asleep again, having seen a ghost before, and knowing that this one meant no harm. I decided to bid the woman in the mirror goodnight and go back to sleep myself. On Monday afternoon, Dwayne told me his Aunt Mary had died on Friday. He asked me to describe a woman I had seen. I told him about her clothes and how she wore her hair up with loose curls at the side. She was a little larger than me, but I, but then I, but m almost the same height. Dwayne told me that I had just described his aunt. I believe his aunt wanted to see the woman he had decided to marry since he is the baby of the family. So, Aunt Mary, it was nice to meet you. You can rest assured that I love Dwayne, and I will take good care of him. Joyce Doran, Fort Worth, Texas, April 1999. The Gift in the High Boy. My mother and I were always extremely close. Though we were separated by thousands of miles at the time of her death, my parents, Charles and Tecla Sand, were then living in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I'm. Jeez. And I was in Denver, Colorado. One of the interests my mother and I shared was the occult. She often told me her own mother had returned after death and helped her find a lost object. She promised that she would try to give me some proof of survival after her own death. On April 7, 1971, I had a strange dream of walking down a crowded street in an unfamiliar city. When suddenly, the black-cloaked skeletal figure of death appeared and beckoned me toward him. I, I began to scream and awaken, still screaming, utterly terrified. I was afraid to dream was a bad omen, that some tragedy would befall one of my children. I did not think it related to my mother. She had had surgery during the winter, but now she seemed to be r recuperating nicely. I mean, honestly, it probably was you. You had the dream. But I guess I could see why it was your children. When, no when nothing unusual happened, had happened after a week or more, I half forgotten the dream. Then on the morning of April 23, it seemed everything went wrong. I seemed a bookcase. I fell over, right on top of my two-year-old son. By some miracle, he wasn't injured, but our lovely glass wine carafe mother had given me was broken. Shortly after this incident, the feeling of wrongness that had spoiled the whole morning seemed to lift. I felt light and happy the rest of the day. 
I was totally unprepared for my mother's call. Brother's call late in the afternoon to tell me my mother had died. Her death had occurred just about the time of the morning that my bookcase had fallen over. When I returned to Milwaukee for the funeral, my, my father asked me to go through mother's things and sort out what could be given away. I completed the sad task and was standing in her their bedroom for the moment, gathering strength for other tasks that awaited me, when suddenly my father's old-fashioned heavy high boy began to shake violently. I had not looked into the chest of drawers since it contained only my father's things, but the shaking led me to open it, one of the lower drawers. In it I found a lovely little blue purse. I gathered that mother purchased it for my daughter's birthday that was to come soon. I believe my mother chose this way and this reason. So similar to what so similar to what my grandmother did for her to prove that to prove to me that there is life after death. Sue Douche Milwaukee, Wisconsin, May nineteen seventy six. Take a sip of water. How y'all doing? Thirty minutes into the podcast, you know what? It's a very good book. Very glad that I got this. Really glad I can share it with you guys. But just wanna know how y'all are doing. How do y'all think about this book? How y'all day is actually? What do you? How's your guys' day be like? Being like, honestly, nothing's happened to me today. I've been doing nothing until I got the book. Now I'm recording this. So, let's get back to it. Just want to take a little break there. Father told me. When I was 12 years old, my father, Paul Walker, passed away after being ill for many months. The first night after his death in October 1941, my brother, my mother suggested I sleep with her. She did not want to be alone, and I, too, felt the need of companionship and comfort. After Mother finally had fallen asleep, I lay staring into the darkness, trying to understand what happened and why. Suddenly, I felt the presence of my father so strongly, I sat up. He was standing at the foot of the bed. He smiled and said, Don't let your mother cry. Make her understand. I am much better off where I am now. I have no more pain. And although I no longer will be with you physically, I shall watch over you as long as you need me. Wow, I almost cried there. Ooh. I started to get out of bed, but he held up his hand and said, No, you cannot touch me. Just know that I am here. Help your mother to understand. I lay back down and fell asleep. At the funeral and later, as the casket was lowered to the grave at Greenville, Idaho, I watched friends and relatives crying. I wanted to say, Don't cry. He isn't down there. He's right here. Later that fall, when I rode home from school one day on my bicycle, I saw my father sitting in a rocking chair on the front porch. I start. I jumped from my bicycle and started to run towards him. Once more, he raised his hand and said, No, you cannot touch me. Do not try. It would only disappoint you and make you sad. I'm just visiting a few moments. He smiled and was gone. During the next 18 years, I grew up, got married, and had three beautiful children. My father helped me overcome many problems during these years, and I, when I would feel a little sad because he'd never met the fine man I married, and not seen his only grandchildren, I'd feel him near and he would whisper, I know, I see them. In January 1961, my mother visited us unexpectedly, because she had a feeling she must see me right away. One evening, we talked about Dad, as she was 
thinking sadly of all the things she could have done to make his life a little easier and more pleasant. As I had done many, th as I had done many times over the years, I assured her she had made him happy, and in no way could she have changed things. Finally, I told of seeing him and the words he had said to me. To my surprise, she did not disbelieve me. She wiped away her tears and said she felt and received happy. She felt relieved and happy. That night I again lay thinking long after everyone was asleep. Suddenly, there was an urgent rustling in my room. And somebody shook me. Frightened up, I sat up. There was my father. He said, you can't go to sleep yet. I must tell you. I cannot stay any longer. I must go now. I have other work to do. And my work here is finished. I love you all, but I must go on. With that, there was a blinding white flash which turned to sky blue, and he was gone. He had stayed with us, helping us all the years we needed him. I do not know what work he has yet to do. But I do know there's life after death, my father told me. Whew, that one got me. Wow. Joan L. Matthews, Garden Grove, California, December 1964. The dog upstairs, why are you yelling? I don't know if you guys heard that, but my dog's upstairs just... Yep, 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 yep. Grandfather remembered as a child. I'll be right back. Take another intermission. Um, get some snacks. Get you what? Get you what? Some water. Get what you need. I'll be back. Turns out the dogs were barking at a guy crossing the street. Isn't that lovely? Let's concede this one. Grandfather remembered. As a child, I lived with my grandparents a great deal of the time. And I loved them very much. One evening I happened... Oh, God, sorry. One evening, I happened to ask my grandfather, John Albert Smith, What will I do when you and Grandma die? He replied, Don't worry, child. We will watch over you always. They both passed away before I was married.
But life went on as usual. In 1939, my husband and I were living in an old four-room house in West Liberty, Iowa. The kitchen was heated by an old wooden coal range, with the stove pipe going up through the first floor to a chimney in the upstairs hallway. My husband, Walter, would get up first, build the fire, fix his breakfast, and leave for work before 6.30 a.m. Hey, I wake up around that time. Hmm. <laughs> School's got my ass. When winter morning and I, when winter on one winter morning, I heard him go downstairs, shake up the stove, and slam the door on his way out. Before going back to sleep, I glanced over to, toward the crib to see if the baby was covered. There stood, there stood my grandfather. He was dressed in his usual gray shirt and bib overalls. He was clean shaven except for his thick gray mustache. He smiled as he started toward my bed. Terrified and trembling like a leaf, I yanked the covers over my head. Soon I felt someone shake my shoulders in the same way Grandfather used to shake it. Then I heard Grandfather's voice saying, Come on, girl. It's time to get up. He spoke in sec, a language I had not used in years. I was so frightened I could barely, I could hardly breathe, but after a while I became brave enough to peek out. Nobody was there. I jumped out of the bed and hurried downstairs where I was discovered a dangerous situation. On the top of the stove was red hot, and the stove pipe was red almost to the floor. In a few more minutes, it would have caught fire. Had I slept as long as usual that morning, the baby and I would have been trapped upstairs. That was the only time my husband forgot to close the draft before leaving for work. But Grandfather did not forget, and he came to take care of me as soon as he promised. Louise Baldwin, Davenport, Iowa, February 1965. Grandfather's Spinet. Is that how you say it? Spin it? Spine it? Spin it? And how if I know? Uh, okay. I never thought much about hereafter. I never thought much about the hereafter after, until the death of my grandfather, Bessie. Grandmother, Bessie Donovan. Sorry. She had been a strong woman, highly intelligent, and had raised a family of six children entirely on her own after the death of her husband. Oh god, where is it? It's so weird. This is, this, the format's weird in this one. Death of her husband. husband. Ed. Death of her husband, Ed. When her children were grown, they each went their own way, and a grandmother was left alone. As she grew older and couldn't get around very well, Grandmother often called on me for help. I worshipped her and enjoyed doing the small things she asked of me. One day, in June 1970, she called me and said she wanted me to have her spin at piano. I was to take it right away. She insisted that I take it before she died, for she felt her children would not remember it was to be given to me. They would only take it and sell it, and I'd never get to play it again, she said. My 12-year-old daughter, Angela, and I both play the piano. Well, both play the piano well, and no, no one or the other of us... And one or the other of us got often played for grandmother in her home. I, haste, I hated to move the piano, but grandmother insisted she knew best. Then suddenly, grandmother died three days after we moved the piano. One morning, a few months after her death, I woke up. About four o'clock, thinking I heard someone playing the old rugged cross on the piano. I got out of bed quickly and fumbled my way to the dark front room. Hmm? 
Without turning on a light, I went to the piano and touched the keys. They felt warm. Just then, Angela came in. Mother, the hymn, sounded lovely, but what are you doing up so early? I had wondered if I had been dreaming, but when Angela spoke, I suddenly understood what grandmother meant when she said they won't would only sell it, and I'd never get to play it again. Betty Arnold, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, May 1974. Give me a moment. The trunk. Over the years, I reminded Dad of a pact we had made that whoever died first was contact the other. Damn. <laughs> Weird thing to say to your dad. <laughs> hey, Dad, when I die, I'm talking to you first. Or other way around. Hey, 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 son, hey, daughter. I'll be there. <laughs> Soon as I die. On December. 23rd, 1983, my brother Jack called from Oklahoma to tell me that had died. We had blizzards at home, and in Oklahoma, so so I did not go to the funeral. That night, I was playing cards with some friends of mine, Esther and Lou, when my cordless phone dialed itself. Esther and Lou were frightened, but I said Dad was letting me know that he could hear and see me. He'd been blind for 20 years, and had recently lost his hearing. Damn, blind and... That was a, didn't yeah Helen Keller was blind and deaf. That must be hard, man. I, I got If you are like somehow watching this and you're blind or listening and you're blind, you got props to you. But if you're deaf, well, you're probably not hearing this. So, uh, if you can somehow see the sound lengths or if someone's put a transcript on this, good job and props to you. In 1975, I was six years old and living with... The, oh, that's the same. Next story. Gertrude Houck, Longmont, Colorado, September 1994. Great-grandmother's bed. In 1965... 75, sorry. I was six years old and living in Cebu City, Philippines. My grand-grandmother, Benita Romero, was blind and very ill. She lived with my family and her bed was in the kitchen so we could easily take care of her. She always wished that she had been able to see my youngest brother, Edwin. Edwin Villanuevo Pepino, who was three, since she had become blind before he was born. One night, my uncle Benjamin Villanuevo Pepino 
my aunt Lorno Papino and I were preparing our dinner and telling jokes with Great Grandma as, as we always did. I was the first to notice that Great Grandma was not responding to our jokes. She was not breathing, only lying there, very still in her bed. I told my uncle that Great Grandma was dead, but he didn't believe me until he checked for himself. The morning after Great Grandmother's funeral, my brother Edwin was found sleeping in her bed. I asked him what he was doing in her bed, and he told me that Great Grandma had come into this room and carried him to her bed. This happened for three nights in a row until he went into Great Grandmother's grave and prayed for her soul to rest. Rest in peace. Edwin never did return to Great Grandma's bed. He slept peacefully in his own room. We believe Great Grandma could finally see Edwin after she passed away. Rowena Denk, Whitehall, Wisconsin, September 1994. A lot of Wisconsin's in this one. Don't know why. Water's so good. The Shaking Bed. My maternal mother enjoyed playing the guitar and the mandolin. As his family grew, he built them a larger home with his own two hands. He was always a self-reliant, independent sort. When he developed heart trouble, he ended his own life in a bout of depression. Rest in peace, man. I was about seven or eight years old at the time of his death. When I reached my mid-twenties after a hitch in Uncle Sammy's army, I had an occasion to stay with my grandmother for a short time in the home built by my grandfather. There was a large picture window in the living room that looked out upon the world. My grandfather had a swivel rocker placed in front of the window. This was the only chair he used in the living room. When I came to say to stay with my grandmother, the old swivel rocker had been replaced with an upholstered recliner, which sat pretty much in the same spot where grandfather used to sit. Often in the evening after work, I would sit in the recliner and practice playing my guitar. Sometimes when I played better than usual, I would feel someone enter the room and watch me, yet I seemed to be alone. I just figured it was Grandpa, and continued to play some of the older tunes that I had learned until I tired of playing. Or my fingers started to get sore. It was, when, it was then that I would set the guitar aside and kick back in the recliner. More often than not, I would soon feel cold pressure on my lap, as if someone were sitting down on me. The coldness would go through my body, and then it would feel as if I were sitting on someone's lap instead of the chair. I assumed that I was again sitting on Grandpa's lap, as I did when I was a child. The room I slept in was the master bedroom. As a young single man, recently turned civilian, I enjoyed visiting the local taverns on Friday and Saturday nights. My grandmother, a devout Christian, very much disapproved of this behavior, and I guess Grandpa did too. Whenever I came home late, any time after 10 o'clock, was late to Grandma. and had even two drinks after work. The bed would begin to shake, just as I was about to fall asleep. I snapped awake. I'd snap awake, fully alert, and it would stop. Then again, just as I would begin to doze off, the bed would begin to shaking a second time. Man, I'd be so pissed. Like, Grandpa! Stop it! Finally, I learned that if I said out loud, Grandpa, I really need to get my sleep, as if I had to go to work in the morning, you know how a working man needs his rest. The bed would not shake anymore, and I could sleep until morning. But this worked only if I did indeed have to work the following day. If not, the bed would shake make me the bed would shake me awake up to ten or twelve times during the night. Man, I'm sleeping on the floor now. Put get, get the mattress, just put the mattress on the floor. He's gonna he's gonna have to pick up the mattress and then shake it with me on it. So good luck, Grandpa. 
One time, I really had too much to drink. I arrived home after closing the bars down and went straight to bed. Before dropping off to sleep, the bed felt as if it were spinning. Knowing that I was going to get sick, I got up and headed for the bathroom. I had left the bathroom door open as if, as it was winter to allow the heat to enter my room. It was dark, and not wanting to disturb Grandpa down the hall, I didn't bother with a light. I walked smack into the closed between bedroom door. I opened the door and headed for the bathroom. When I returned, I bumped into the closed bedroom door again. I got into my bed, and it began to shake more violently than ever. As soon as I laid down, I sat up, and the shaking stopped. I could see Grandpa standing at the foot of the bed, arms crossed, watching me. I said, Grandpa, I've had too much to drink tonight, and I'm sorry to be coming home drunk. I've had a lot on my mind lately, and I tried to drink it all away. That didn't work, and this will never happen again. And it didn't. It was then that I saw him uncross his arms and smile at me shaking his head and walking out of the room. I was able to sleep peacefully the rest of the night, and that was the last time I ever actually saw him. One day, I asked Grandma if she had ever felt Grandma's presence. Many times, she said, but she especially noticed that he was near when she laid down on the sofa to take a nap. It was then that she felt invisible fingers combing through her hair and heard Grandpa's voice softly calling her name. She said that she knew that he was always watching over her and that he was just waiting until it was time for her to join him, so he would be together again. Grandma passed on two years ago, so I guess they were together again now. Grandma and Grandpa too? I guess I finally accepted that I would have a few drinks once in a while. Grandma even said that according to the Bible, and Grandpa, a little bit of wine or whiskey was actually good for a person. So as long as I stayed away from beer, and limited my whiskey to five drinks or less, I could get her to sleep. But even I had... But even... <sighs> but even if I had a slight buzz, then in return home, Grandpa would keep me awake half the night shaking the bed. Kevin Gardner, Clay City, Indiana, June 2000. Oh, that's Indiana? Oh, hell no. I live in Indiana, man. I'm not... I don't want that. Promise made and kept. My father-in-law, Elmer Clifford, was a man of strong character. He was always occupied, but never too busy to repair a broken toy for his grandchildren or a piece of furniture for me. The noise associated with his work kept us always aware of Papa's, Pop's presence. We lived on a remote ranch seven miles southeast of Custer, South Dakota, our homes separated by a wooded hill. During the summer of 1956, 58, Pop had a lovely room to his house. Perhaps he saw the envy in my eyes as I watched his house grow. When harvest is over, I'll build a dining room on your kitchen, he promised. You'll have it for Christmas. Whatever Pop promised was a certainty. I made curtains and selected furnishing from the catalog. But Pop didn't live to fulfill his promise. He was fatally injured, injured in a tractor accident on July 18, 1958, and died six days later in the Lutheran Hospital, Hot Springs, South Dakota. Soon after his funeral, the pounding began. I was transplanting lilacs when I heard the steady beat of a hammer on the shovel and hurried to investigate. The pounding stopped abruptly as I reached the gate that divided the property. The buildings were in full view, 25 feet beyond the gate. all that noise it's not a, it's not a thing of cows it's actually my dogs I 
Nevertheless, the pounding continued, day after day. Then I began to notice the horses pastured near Top's Pop's place. We were acting strangely. They were placed, the horses near Pop's place were acting strangely. They would stare toward his house, snorting and shying, then bolt to the far end of the pasture where they kept a nervous watch on the buildings. I searched and again for a possible intruder. A few days later, my son Rhett and daughter Patty came running up the house, breathless and obviously frightened. What is that pounding up at Pops? Patty demanded. There isn't anyone there, Rhett added, uh, uh, softening his voice. Now, I couldn't blame the paddings on my own overactive imaginations. I think Pop is trying to tell us something, I said. That evening, we told my husband Walter what we had heard. I insisted they move Pop's new room and attach it to our kitchen. It would be the same as if Pop had added dining room for us. Once the project began, the mysterious pounding stopped. Christmas dinner was served in the new dining room. Pop's promise was fulfilled, and his spirit set free of earthly commitment. Messia Clifford. Custer, South Dakota, October 1969. That is the end of uh, Unfinished Business. So I think that's going to be the end of the podcast today, or the episode. If you enjoyed this, feel free to... It's only like 10 pages, but... That's probably the best part of the book is unfinished business. It's not a. It's supposed to, a lot of these are supposed to be scary ones, but some of these weren't just scary. Half of them were actually just sad. I I almost cried like twice. Two of those stories almost got me. I guess my family has some of those beliefs too. That like oh there's a life after it. There's a plant that my mother used to have. Uh, some type of cactus, but it lived on like twice almost three times what it was supposed to live so we assumed it was our grandmother have a good day